Let's start over. I apologize. We've lost about 120 seconds. Right. Okay. So welcome to, I uh, apologize for that. Right. Welcome to uh, the uh, uh, Parsha of the week, Matos Masay, in the teachings of Rav Moshe al-Sheikh. And I'd like to look together initially at the uh, aftermath of the battle with Midian. So in chapter 31, and Bamidbar numbers chapter 31, if you're with me in the art scroll, then please turn towards the latter part of that chapter. Um, Pasuk Memches. So it's verse 48 on page 908. And uh, it's actually one of the relatively few pages in the Stone of Fumish where there's no commentary on the Hebrew side at all because the text doesn't lend itself to that much, as I say, elaboration. But here, I want to share with you what uh, Al-Sheikh says about the return, that is to say, the uh, like uh, uh, interrogation of Moshe regarding the officers. So the officers, the Sare Ha'elef and the other uh, sort of uh, higher up uh, um, military personnel, they approach Moshe. So we're picking it up in Pasuk Memchas, verse 48. So the officers, the ones in charge of thousands and hundreds, they approach Moshe. Your servants have made a reckoning of the men of the war, which are in our hands. And none of them are missing. Now, the art school people render this. Your servants took a census of the men of war under our command. And not a man of us is missing. But Al-Sheikh observes that Torah uses some unusual expressions here. That are in our hands. What does that mean? He said this is Mishulal Havana. It doesn't have any um, uh, explanation that sort of, it's an unusual turn of phrase. We've reckoned or we've taken a census of the men of the war that are in our hands. What's the meaning? He says that the Torah should have said, uh, none of them have been killed, not, or none of them are dead, none of them have died, none of them have been killed. What's the meaning of nifkad? Nifkad means to be diminished, to be subtracted. Then it says, when I crave this Karaman Hashem, and we want to bring an offering to God. Each man who has found various types of utensils, but these are not kitchen utensils. They're not ornamental in the sense of something that's decorative for the house, but these are all feminine adornments. Etzadat, samid, tabas, agil, chumaz. Now, the last of these, the chumaz, actually is some kind of, um, uh, here it's rendered uh, clasp which is a bit bland. Really, the kumaz, the Talmud says, it was some kind of ornament of an intimate nature. It may have been a, a golden brazier that a woman would, would wear. It was something or, or even more intimate, uh, something that would never be, let's say, visible uh, uh, in, in public, something in a very private place. And these are what the men had plundered from the uh, Midianites. And we want to bring in as a rebbe So he asked, "What is lifnei Hashem?" Al Sheikh asked, "What is lifnei Hashem before God? Everything is before God. Why not just say the chaper nafshoseinu? And what kind of kapara? What kind of atonement do they require?" 
Now Moshe initially wasn't very happy with it. He said, Did you keep the women alive? So in Pasuk Nun Aleph, then look at Nun base. We call us a haver tuma, so there's a reckoning how much it was. And Anshe had sabah bazazu ish lo, each person from the, each member of the uh, uh, Jewish uh, military force, they plundered each man for himself. And eventually Moshe took it and So Al Sheikh, I've told you the questions that he asked, and he suggests the following. This war against Midian was a, a special type of war, and I would say the threat that was posed by the Midianites to the Jewish people was a specific type of threat, and the harm that they brought about to the Jewish people, for which they were uh, worthy and deserving of this counterattack, was of a specific nature as well. Of course, you know I'm referring to the fact that the Midianite women seduced the men, the Moabite women were on, on to that as well, but the Midianites apparently were especially uh, maybe uh, vigorous or determined or maybe seductive or alluring or successful and to the point that they brought about the death of 24,000 men of Israel and that's why we have this counteroffensive. That means that, as I say, the threat of the Midianites was more from the women than from the men. It was the... the uh, potential to bring about the uh, downfall of the men in terms of their moral stature. That Midian is all about the, the lust. It's about the desire for illicit uh, sexual uh, adventure and experience and pleasure. So the Al-Sheikh quotes a medrash that when the Jewish soldiers would enter a home, so the first one in would bring with him like a paintbrush and he would uh, blacken the face of the women in the house so that neither he nor those who enter the house after him would be attracted to these women. I, I don't know if it was a permanent thing, probably not, but at least, uh, you know, initially, when there's such a strong attraction and such a track record, such a baleful uh history of the Jewish men and the Midianite women. So they took this measure as a kind of protective or preemptive measure so that they won't be uh, attracted to these Midianite women. That's why Moshe said, did you keep the women alive? The women are the, the main uh, threat to the Jewish people here, the Midianite women. So therefore, they said that uh, uh, you think they replied to Moshe. You think that that we are suspect of keeping the women for reasons of immoral purposes. Maybe we desire, or we have already succumbed to their charms, and that's why we've kept them for our own uh, uh, illicit uh, uh, gratification. So therefore, they said lonifkad mimenu ish. So the word ish in the Torah always means, unless there may be some exceptions, there may be reasons why there may be an exception to it, but the general rule, the rule of thumb is the word ish means righteous. We've got other terms for that are used for a person, for a man, but the word ish in the Torah connotes righteousness. So when they say, the meaning is that none of us have been diminished from the status of righteousness. 
That's why it doesn't say none of them have died, none have been killed, none of them have been lost in battle. It means they none of them have been morally degenerate, none of them have been diminished in in battle. And if Kadmi Menu, none of us are have become like knocked down to size. Uh, all of the members of the Jewish army, which were by by the way selected, it wasn't the uh, you know vast numbers of the fighting force they took a thousand from each tribe okay a thousand is a substantial number but they took a thousand people who are worthy and that's why they say we haven't compromised our our moral uh probity so and he said even to look at a woman that's why we've blackened their their faces we haven't even gazed at them the expression, though, he says, He says, the meaning is, There are two types of war. There's the battle against the enemy, against the other soldiers. But then there's the battle against the Yetzir Hara. The battle against the internal battle. When it says, uh, um, Sorry, Nas... Uh, the officers reported to Moshe, we've taken a reckoning or a census of the uh, of, of the members of the people of regarding the milchama which is in our hands because Lashem Hamilchama, God is the one who uh, is in control of the war and of the battle. So the success of on the battlefield, that's in God's hands. But there's another battle, the battle against the Yitzhahara. And that is not in God's hands, that's in our hands. Because Hakol Bidei Shemaim, Chutz Miyira Shemaim. Fear of heaven is in the hands of man. So when it says, Hamilchama Asher Biyadeinu, it means regarding the war which is within our control and only our control, the battle against the Yitzhahara, that's Lonifkamimenuish. None of us have, has succumbed. So he's alluding, he doesn't say it, but he's alluding to the famous passage in the uh, in Chobos Halavavos, where a group of soldiers are returning victorious from a battle and they're all in good spirits. And the uh, Hasid or the wise man approaches them and says, you have prevailed in the lesser battle. Let's hope that you prevail in the greater battle as well, because the greater battle is the battle against the Yitzhahara. So that's Anshei Hamil Hamashabiyadeinu regarding the war which is in our hands. Then he says about all of these ornaments, I said these are not household effects and these are not uh, kitchen or tableware. These are all uh, adornments, ornaments, jewelry uh, that a woman will wear to adorn herself, to beautify herself. So that's what they uh, plundered and they're now going to offer it to Hashem. So uh, again, Al-Sheikh says that if you look closely, do you notice that the Torah says, uh, in Pasuk Nun, in verse 50, when I crave as Korban Hashem, ish Hashem matzah, each man who has found. So Al-Sheikh says, you know, uh, if these uh, Midianite women are so seductive, and if they're so uh, attractive, and their lures are so uh, compelling, then, you know, she would say to one of these Jewish soldiers, you know, you want my necklace? Come and get it, honey. 
You know, you want my my earrings, darling? Come on, come come in and take it. Come and get it. In other words, he says that how would the men even approach these women to take her bracelet, to take her earrings, let alone what I mentioned earlier about the kumas. So he says that's why the Torah says, Ish Asher Matzah, what he found. We didn't take it from the women. We didn't take it from them. Whatever they were wearing, we left. But whatever we found in the house, in the cabinet, in the, uh, you know, in a woman's, uh, where she keeps her jewelry, that we, we found and we, we brought it and we plundered it. But we didn't take it from, from upon the women at all. And that's why he says, finally, we didn't do anything that was, uh, as I said, to succumb to the blandishments, the attractions of these Midianite women. But nevertheless, we need to offer something before God because a thought, a momentary desire, a kind of uh, almost involuntary instinctive attraction to these uh, beautiful women that we can't say for sure that we were free of that. We didn't perform any action that was wrong, but something that's in the heart. So that's why Lifne Hashem, that maybe before God, that which Hashem can see, Hashem Yira Leleva, because God peers into the heart. So regarding what is only before God and not evident to any onlooker, to any person, so for that, we do need a kapara because we can't say for sure that none of us uh, were attracted even, so to speak, in his heart to these women. So that's why Moshe was ultimately uh, uh, appeased or, or you know, um, convinced of the rectitude of the men. And ultimately, he did take these uh, jewels, etc., that were offered, and he accepted it, Zikaron Livna Hashem. So this is what uh, Al-Shir says, about the war against Midian, and that's why he says, regarding the milchama that's in our, uh, within our hands, so the battle against the Eight Sahara, which is the most difficult battle, we have maintained our, as I said, uh, moral uh, uh, position, even in the face of the extreme temptation uh, presented by the Midianite women. I want to now turn to uh, the other uh, main subject in Parshas Matos, which takes up the entirety of chapter 32, which is also a long chapter, and that is the petition of the tribes of Gad and Reuven, who want to stay in the Transjordan. So we find that the Torah lavishes quite a lot of attention on this incident, in which two of the 12 tribes had a lot of livestock, and because of their vast livestock, they were attracted to Transjordan, the land that was very good pasture land, and they petitioned the motion, we'd like to stay here. So what take you? a look on page 910, if you're with me in the stone, Chumash, whatever Chumash you have, it's chapter Lamed base, chapter 32. <speaking in Hebrew> The children of Reuven and God had abundant livestock, very great. So these are multiple expressions of multiplicity. Mikneh Rav, a great amount. Atsum Ma'od, 
like uh, very great. Atsum is great. Mode is very good. Virus Eretz Yazer. And they looked around and they saw this is Makomikneh. This is a, a great place for pasture. Now, the commentaries uh, highlight certain aspects of the uh, exchange between these the heads of these tribes and Moshe. Perhaps the most well known is the observation that they apparently prioritized their livestock, their wealth over their families and their children. Uh, Al-Sheikh, without uh, explicitly addressing that uh, comment, well-known comment of Rashi, but he sheds bright light, clear light on this subject. And I'd like to share with you a small amount of what he says. He first begins with an observation about the first letter of this chapter, Umikne Rav. Why does it say Umikne Rav and much livestock. Why doesn't it say mikne rav haya? Why does it say the vav, the vav hachibur? This is a vav which connects it with what came previously. And how does it seem to be related to what came previously? Of course, it's true to say that the war against Midian sort of paved the way for their request to settle in that land. But they're not settling in Midian anyway. The land where they want to stay is the land of Sichon and Og. It's the land that was conquered already a few weeks ago or perhaps earlier than that, but in terms of the Parshas, we read about it already. So what's the relationship between Mikne Rab, they had a lot of livestock, and they advanced this petition to Moshe with what came before. Umikne Rab. Says Al-Sheikh, all of the Jewish people and would have had uh, cattle and sheep and goats, uh, livestock. Yeah, was that all? Maybe some did not, but collectively the Jewish people had, and therefore each tribe would have. For some particular reason, the tribes of Gad and Reuven had more than others. That could be just, uh, you know, accidentally. You can't expect every tribe to have an exact identical amount of livestock, but it could also be they were gifted with animal husbandry or for other reasons uh, as well. What's the connection to the battle with Midian? So he says that the Torah describes in the previous chapter, we didn't look at it, but you can look for yourself, that the uh, booty, the spoils of war included, besides that jewelry that we did discuss, um, cattle, livestock, and camels, other things as well. And the Torah actually mentions how many of each one they had, and they divided it up among the Jewish people, among each of the tribes. So says Al-Sheikh, these tribes, Gad and Reuven, they had a lot. It says, they had a lot initially. Because they had a lot previously, when they received the allocation from Midian, they would now had like an overabundance. That's why it says, Atsuma owed very great. So if you have, if a tribe of Israel has a modest or intermediate amount of livestock, and then they get more, okay, they've got more. But if they had a lot already, and then they get even more, it's more than they can cope with, and they're concerned. The land of Israel, who knows what allocation we're going to even get within the land. But here, it's very spacious. There's lots of pasture land. We've got so much cattle and livestock, we can hardly cope. Let's just stay here. So that's the first thing he says in terms of like um, uh, justifying their petition. Moreover, he says that uh, the he observes that maybe the tribe of God had even more than Reuven, because the Torah here says in chapter 32, verse 1, God, 
Reuven is mentioned before God for good reason, because Reuven was the firstborn, the first of Yaakov's sons, even though that was generations ago. But still, those who come from the tribe of Reuven are accustomed to the primacy. God was from Bilhah. He was the son of Bilhah, who was the maidservant of Rachel. So uh, he came on the scene later and would be of a a uh, secondary position if you want to be exacting in that regard. In any case, we understand why it says Reuven first and then God. However, when it comes to the petition, it says in Pasuk Beis, Vayavo v'nei God v'nei Reuven. Now it's reversed and God is first. And subsequently, all the time, God is first. It says Al-Sheikh, it could be that God had even more than Reuven. God couldn't cope with all of the, the livestock that they had. They, it, it was like a... a, a um, problem, a situation that demanded a solution. So maybe that's why God approached first. And there was a natural sympathy on Moshe's part for them. By the way, he says also that in the Song of Devorah, uh, where she mentions about Reuven, and she, just find it here, where she refers to the fact that the tribe of Reuven did not get involved with helping in the battle. And she contemplates how she more than contemplates, she highlights the fact that they uh, were content to stay in their Transjordan area where they were able to just listen to the shriek or the uh, livestock. And I can't find it here. Okay. Anyway, uh, just she says that she was criticizing Reuven more than God because God had so much livestock. The fact that they were on Eva Hayarden in the Transjordan can be can be understood. Meaning, they they were faced with a challenge and the natural solution to stay in that vast pasture land was just too um, logical to to be subject to criticism. But he says something else much more profound. He says that the proposal was, we will go in the vanguard. What's, who asked for chalutzim? Moshe just said when in his criticism, are you in, suggesting you're going to settle here, you're going to stay here, and you're going to just... Uh, uh, seize or claim the property that's already been conquered by everybody on your behalf, and then you're going to claim it. Everybody participated in the battle with Sihon and Og, and you're going to claim all the benefit. And when they go into the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, you're going to say, well, we've got our thing already, so we're not going to help there. That's completely unacceptable. Moshe criticized them harshly for that. They said, no, that's not what we had in mind. Our intention was to say that we are going to build uh, for, uh, sheepfolds for our flock and corrals um, uh, for the cattle and homes for our families. And then we're going to go into the land of Israel in the vanguard. So firstly, I mentioned earlier that Moshe's well-known comment of Rashi, that Moshe implies a criticism of them. You prioritize your livestock over your family. But according to al their whole point was this. We're here because of the livestock. It's because you have so much livestock. That's why we want to build a place for them. Now, 
we are actually making an offer which is greatly advantageous to the Jewish people. Firstly, the fact that we're staying here means that we're not going to claim a portion in the land of Israel, so there's more for everybody else. But besides that, everyone else, the Jewish people collectively, are going into the land of Canaan. They're crossing the Jordan with their wives, with their children, with their camels, with their donkeys, with their livestock, with their goats and their sheep. They're going to move at a very slow pace, and they're going to be very vulnerable to attack. We are going to leave behind the encumbrances, and we're going to be the crack troops. We're going to be the special forces, the SAS of the Jewish people, we're going to go in the vanguard because we're unencumbered. That's how we can go chalutzim. And that makes a lot of sense. And according to that, the fact that they mentioned the, the, the uh, provisions for their uh, livestock and all of that, it wasn't because they, they prioritized that over the families, but on the contrary, that was the reason that necessitated this thing. And that's why it says, Vayikshu el Moshe, the uh, they approached him because initially they approached everyone, meaning it says, uh, look at Pasuk base, verse two. They said to Moshe, to Elazar the Kohen, who was the son and successor of Aharon, and the Nisiyahida, the princes of the tribe. So they, they addressed their request to everyone. But then subsequently, it says that they approached Moshe specifically. Why? He says, because we have a concern for our sheep and our goats, for the flock. Moshe, you're the shepherd. You can relate to that. You are the one who has an appreciation for the responsibility that we have to the sheep and to the flock. Uh, he even mentions the well-known medrash that Moshe found the burning bush. He came across the snare because he went after a, uh, one sheep that had been lost. And he found it and he brought it back on his back or something like that. So Moshe has the, is one who's has al-hatzon. And therefore they approached Moshe. The, initially they approached everyone. But then they addressed their petition, especially to, to Moshe uh, uh, specifically. It says more than this as well uh, in terms of exactly where the city is where they wanted to stay. And there's another point also. Moshe's objection was that if you build, uh, 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 yeah, they said, we're going to build a place for our sheep first. Why? Not because the sheep are more important than the women or the children, but because to build a city for women and children, it takes a long time. We're trying to uh, recover from one flood and it's taking, I don't want to tell you how long. So if they were, and, and we, the house is still standing, the house wasn't, uh, you know, uh, devastated, uh, just damaged. My point is that to build a city from scratch, how many years is that going to take? So you're going to delay us, says Moshe. Or, so, uh, or, or I mean, the proposal when they said we're going to, so therefore they said, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to just build a place for our sheep that doesn't take long because sheep don't need the provisions that uh, a family needs. And therefore we can do that within a few weeks. And once we've done that, now we'll be in a position to be of much greater service to the Jewish people. Besides which God is the warrior. God, and it says, that God was the fiercest warriors of the of the the families of Israel. Bekitzur, 
Al-Sheikh, I haven't had a chance to elaborate fully, but Al-Sheikh sheds brilliant light on this whole uh, exchange. He goes a long way to exonerating uh, these tribes of Gad ul um, As I said, others take a more critical view, but he explains in a deeper way, in a more sophisticated way, this whole exchange, which is fascinating. We don't really have much time left, but I want to share with you one last beautiful drash that he offers. One of the interesting turns of phrase, which you may have noticed, is they say, Nachnu nechaletz chalutzim. Nachnu. You can find that in... Uh, yeah, chapter 32, verse 32. 32, 32. Lave, lave. So turn to that pasuk. You can find it on page 914 in the art scroll. And it says, Nachnu na'avor chalutzim divnei Hashem. Nachnu. Now there's something missing in that word, Nachnu, it's missing the Aleph, Anachnu. The word Anachnu is the full usage, and it's uncommon that we find the like the diminished or the shortened form Nachnu. What's the significance of the absence of the Aleph? So the truth is, he explains the significance of it in its own terms. But then at the end, very end of the parsha, gives a beautiful drash. He quotes the Masorah. The Masorah is a project undertaken by the ancients by the ancient uh, Jewish scholars to count the letters and the words in the Torah, not just to assign a number, how many to Torah them, but to count how many times every word appears in the Torah. And not just the Torah, but all of the Tanakh in the scriptures as well. So according to the Masorah, the word Nachnu, without the Aleph, appears four times. Hulanu b'nei ish echad Nachnu, we're all the sons of one father, V'nachnu ma, Moshe and Aaron said, what are we? Nachnu na'avor chalutzim is, of course, our pasuk. And then it says, Nachnu pashanu umarinu atalo salachta. If that sounds familiar, it's because it comes from the book of Eicha. And if it doesn't sound familiar, we're likely to hear Eicha on Tisha B'Av, unless Mashiach comes before. But anyway, the pasuk is in Eicha. Even after Mashiach, we find the pasuk in Eicha. Nachnu fashanu umarinu. We have sinned and we have rebelled and you have not forgiven us. So those are the four instances of Nachnu. I'll read it again. We are all the sons of one man. These are the sons of Yaakov saying to Yosef, uh, not knowing, of course, that he was Yosef. We have Nachnu Ma, Moshe and Aaron said, what are we? We have Nachnu Navor Chalutzim in our pasuk where the tribes of God and Ruben say, we will go in the vanguard with Chalutzim. And we have from Eicha, Nachnu Fashanu Marinu. So it says Al-Sheikh as follows. Uh, when it says kulanu b'nei ish echad, remember that we, we said the word ish uh, refers to a tzaddik. So people might say, b'nei ish echad nachnu, we're all the sons of a tzaddik, of a righteous person. And therefore, th that being the case, we don't need to occupy ourselves with a lot of Torah study and mitzvah observance because we've got schus avos. We come from such a distinguished family. So uh, we will coast on the credit and on the merit of our father. Therefore, they say, even, nach, even if nachnuma, we don't have anything to really for ourselves. What are we? We haven't brought anything to the table. No problem, because we're the sons of a righteous person. So the schus of the father, that will be enough for us. So that is erroneous. But rather, we have to 
cross over, meaning crossing over to the next world, Chalutzim. The word Chalutzim, I said vanguard, but all, like the Chalutzim they had for the uh, in modern times. But also, Chalutzeit Savai means those who go armed, those who go with armaments. So, we have to accrue our own merit. Don't take the view that we bring nothing to the table, but we're okay. We've got a father whose merit is sufficient. That's not so. You've got to accrue your own merit. You've got to bring your own um, uh, like uh, accomplishments to the next world. And if not... If we say if we have sinned and we have transgressed, then what will become of the merit of the Father? We will squander it. So if we do nothing uh, of our uh, of our own accord, and then we sin and transgress, then there's nothing left of Zchus Avos. Halo atalo salachta, because Hashem will not forgive a person who sins and presumes to coast through uh, just on the merit of his, of his lineage. Our own sins are not going to be erased. When we pass from this world after 120 years, sometime sooner, we should go with armaments, that is to say, with equipment, with accomplishments, with merit, with that which we have accrued, of our own accord, what we ourselves have accomplished. That's how he explains the nachnu that appears in these four places in a beautiful drash. Thank you. We've gone over a little bit, but then again, the first two minutes, uh, we had to rewind because I forgot to unmute. So thank you to everyone, and um, have a good Shabbos. We are um, speaking at Kesher on the Dvar Torah after Kiddush is on the subject of Aliyah, living in the land of Israel, is it a mitzvah? And for Pirkei Avos, we are doing a spade to dig with. Fascinating stuff. Join us at 8 o'clock for those who are local for Pirkei Avos uh, Shabbos afternoon before Mincha and uh, wish everyone a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you, Rabbi Brilliant share. Good Shabbos. Thank you very much. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Brilliant share. Thank you. Profound thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Thank you.